At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. The Bigger Picture. Going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. This is Simon Rose. Welcome to the Bigger Picture. I am now joined by Tim Evans, Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Well, isn't there a Chinese saying, Tim, a sort of curse on their neighbour, may you live in interesting times? Well, we're living in interesting times at the moment, aren't we? We are, and we're living in uh, times, in reality, you and I have long foreseen. Uh, forget the details uh, about the, the trust government and quasi Kwarteng and, and the clear errors that were made. Uh, the point is that we have had um, oceans of cheap money, in inverted commas, and we've had lots of this cheap money for many, many years. We've had oceans of QE. We now have lots of public and private indebtedness. Of course, we've been through COVID with all the rights and wrongs and costs attached to that. We have the war in Ukraine. We have the lockdown, the ongoing lockdown, um, and the slowdown, which is very significant in China. Uh, we have the ongoing disruption to global supply chains. We have soaring energy costs. We have inflation. We have a cost of living crisis. We have ideological disagreements. We have division in our political parties, not just the government. Uh, we have careerism. We have people lying. We have poor leadership. We have poor communication. And we have, it seems to me, endless name-calling, blaming, and a lack of responsibility. And it's the conjuncture of those features that I think it's not that that Britain has checkmated itself. You know, this debate that politicians are having, which is, um, well, they can't really spend more. They spend oceans. But, you know, with the Bank of England, should they put up interest rates or... Will that add to the woes of the system? You know, it's almost, it's been like that film title in the 70s with Clint Eastwood, Every Which Way But Lose. It's not that the system has checkmated itself, but it's certainly in check. And um, we all know about the woes of the government. It hit me quite hard yesterday when I was flicking across a few of the channels and a Labour MP came on and they asked, this Labour MP, you know, could that they may soon be in government, could they name any of their policies? Uh, um, and actually, the Labour MP avoided the question. Um, and I just put that to be the temperature, you know, it's almost a benchmark of the woes um, uh, uh, in our parliament. The government is clearly in meltdown. I have no idea if Liz Truss is going to survive today, let alone the next two weeks. Um, but but there is well, nobody with a clear sort of established body of knowledge and mm. vision that they can articulate and that they seem to be able to take people, sort of gather them behind. If, if there were an election, I think Labour would storm it. But three or four months into that government, 
I have no idea if they too would not be riven with division and rancor and disagreement. So it's extraordinary. Well, what about the, you talk about transport, what about the Conservative Party it, it, itself? I mean, can that survive? This, I mean, you, know, you you read umpteen talks about you know um, the disruptive um, influence of um, uh, Farage. I don't know whether he's in the offing. We've still got Boris Johnson, who's really not said very much recently, except when he's actually paid for it at enormous um, um, expense. So, do you think the Conservatives will be torn to pieces about that? You know, you talked over the last few years very often about the Conservative Party ability to reinvent itself. It seems to have forgotten how to do that. I agree. And uh, well, the first thing is the last time we had anything like this in British politics was really the late 1970s and the early 80s. Back then, um, the Conservative Party was divided into three factions. There were the Thatcherites, who were known as the Dries. There were the traditional One Nation Tory wets who often were public schoolboys back then, and they were quite paternalistic and patrician in their outlook. And they loathed Margaret Thatcher. They thought she was an upstart, you know, lower middle-class daughter of a grocer. There was a whole class dynamic to it. Yes. Uh, but they loathed her sort of um, free market and, and commercial ideas. There was a third group um, that were known back then as the authoritarians, and they variously centered around the Monday Club, and they were obsessed with identitarianism. Um, they were quite authoritarian. Um, and I think they strayed into racism. Today, um, it seems to me that the Conservative Party in Parliament has a minimum of five factions. I won't bore you with the detail, but each of those seem to be sort of subdivided. Mm. So it, it's, it's as a party, it's like a glass that has fallen to the ground and it shattered into large pieces, but then there were splinters and fragments off each shard. Um, the Conservative Party is historically the most successful political party for at least the last 200, 250 years in the West. And they're able to do that because they've been shapeshifters and they've always come together in a time of crisis. I don't know if that is possible. Late last night on national television, Farage said that he would be happy to form a new political party, uh, a new party of the centre-right, but he wouldn't be able to do it on his own, that he would look to high-quality sort of defectors um, and thinkers from other political traditions and tribes. Even if... Nigel Farage were successful in that venture over the coming years. And there are lo there's lots of reasons to suggest he may not be, given the electoral design of the system. Um, in an ultimate sense, all he would be inventing um, is um, his own, what he would call, sound version of a centre-right party. So the point is, even if he were successful, actually what would be delivered in time is just uh, uh, another version yes. of the Conservative Party. Yes. I don't think to depress people, but, um, but it's, it, what strikes me is this is not just an inflection point. 
This is a really big moment in history. And it reminds me of the sort of changes that occurred in the early part of the 19th century, where people like Peel um, actually changed the institutional landscape of the country. You know, you had things like the 1832 Reform Act, where the franchise was expanded. Even though Napoleonic France had been defeated, there was suddenly the creation of, national, of constabulary police forces, first in London, but then spreading out over the, over the counties. What followed later were the great municipal centres and the rise of local government. But the point was a whole new architecture was put in place. And as I look around, and as a taxpayer, not confident, if I will, I would get an ambulance, not confident that there are parts of the country I could even get a dentist, not confident that the police would attend a burglary if I suffered mm. something. It seems to me that the institutional architecture is being outpaced by events. And I'm not confident now that there is any tribe, any grouping anywhere in Parliament that could really turn this around on a sustainable basis without some fair degree of upheaval. And I'm not confident that someone who can come in from the outside and sprinkle some apparent, you know, populist fairy dust, someone like Nigel, Nigel Farage, um, could really deliver yeah. the sort of visual change that's required. So I'm actually quite downbeat about this. I think we're in for a really rocky ride if we're not careful well, as regular listeners will know you invariably discuss your eternal optimism it is very rare tim that you talk like this um yeah. so that's making me even more depressed than i was before we started let us take a quick um, pause for breath though when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose, and you may need a stiff drink. I'm talking to Professor Tim Evans, Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. We're talking about the complete mess that's at the centre of politics. I mean, I mentioned Nigel Farage. Uh, Tim, you will remember that a few years ago, I worked as a spokesperson for a group called Save Our Savers, which was essentially trying to tell the world that that you know um, continuing with low interest rates for a long time was was an appalling um, um, problem and storing up difficulties for the future. Uh, I did actually meet Nigel Farage at one stage and try getting him interested. But the thing is, although he was in the markets, he's as you say, he's not necessarily an economic thinker, and he at that time didn't think it was there was anything particularly wrong with it. Um, and the problem is, we it's an economic problem. Uh, I mean, I suspect that all those things you enumerated right at the beginning that is currently wrong, almost all of them can be traced back to keeping interest rates on the floor for 14 years, storing up problems of indebtedness, um, creating zombie companies, making people um, 
think that interest rates could stay low forevermore. And as Truss and Kwarteng did say, you know, what that's essentially done is get rid of growth. And without growth in the economy, we get an economy that cannot go anywhere. And eventually, presumably, we'll get more and more depressed until something actually snaps. We cannot continue funding the NHS without growth in the economy. We can't cope with the aging population without growth in the economy. So where on earth are we going to go? And and how did so many people come to believe that it was possible to depress the price of money and have no consequences? I mean, there were people warning about it, but they were very much on the on the margin. Why was the whole world essentially ignoring all the economic lessons of centuries and coming to believe, well, what did you call it? You used the phrase pixie dust, but it's economic pixie dust, wasn't it? Yes. So I think the first thing is that um, whereas over the last hundred years, there has been a battle in economics between what you might call the mainstream economists, the Keynesians, and, and the people who disagree with them, the Austrians or the Hayekians, um, what we're at, we're at, you know, another chapter in that ongoing saga. The problem we have is that most mainstream economists in Britain um, are Keynesians. They're not aware of neo-Keynesians um, or haven't been until recently. Or the, and most of them can't really describe the difference between a, a Chicago school monetarist or, or an Austrian economist. And this is a problem because... Um, when you look at the Monetary Policy Committee of the Bank of England or, or some of the people at the other central banks around the world or indeed um, in, in our treasury, it, it means that you've got people who run the risk of suffering from groupthink. I agree with Liam Halligan, uh, the great economic journalist and commentator, when he criticises the MPC for having too much groupthink and simply for having too many people with a similar and self-reinforcing worldview. The other thing I would say is that politicians, politics, political power is usually very, very close to, to, to business and particularly to big business and the vested interests of big business. And what we've seen over the last 14 years um, is big business, particularly in the shape of our financial institutions, influence the politicians and feed off the back of those groupthink mainstream economists. And so when the crisis hit in 2008, when the financial crisis hit, uh, a magic money tree was revealed to the public. And the tragedy is that here we are all these years later, really the, managed, the magic money tree wasn't just revealed to the public and didn't just rescue things in 2008 and 2009. It's gone on pumping, pumping money. And it's got to the point where people have forgotten the basics of economics. They don't really understand how capital is formed over time. They don't really understand that you can kick the can down the road with low interest rates, but there can be at some point a butcher's bill to pay. And they don't understand... Um, Therefore, the sorts of things that are happening now, whereby the Bank of England is behind the curve because they're so um, risk averse to raising interest rates, 
Um, so they let inflation rip. That inflation, of course, is, of course, causes huge injustices, and it goes on um, penalizing people who have been thrifty, people who have saved money, people who have saved deposits to try and get on the housing ladder. Uh, it it, it penalizes, um, you know, all kinds of people. And, and as Hayek, the great economist said, actually, if you want to understand human history, if you really want to turn the history books and understand, you know, one dark page from the next dark page, um, then you better understand the history and nature of inflation. And that's what I think haunts me these days when I look at Britain and I look further afield around the world. And yet, almost everything we read and hear is putting all the blame on trusts and quarting, obviously mishandled things terribly, but as if somehow the problem isn't, is entirely down to them. Is it doesn't seem to be any waking up to so, the real reality of what's going on. Uh, there, are two there, are, there are two occasions this year where I confess I swore at the radio once was the day before Putin's invasion, when I heard Mary Dijewski on Radio 4 saying that she was convinced there would be no invasion. Hmm. I swore at the radio. And on the second occasion, it was when uh, the Bank of England, having allowed the public and commentators in the city to believe that there would be a 0.75 rate rise coming in interest rates, then came out with a 0.5 rate rise. And for me, if you actually trace um, forensically, you know, what happened to Truss and Kwarteng, it was that decision by the Bank of England that, that I think sparked uh, or fueled um, the, the, you know, the, the, the downward trajectory of the pound. Then Kwarteng and Truss's staging the micro-politics, the way they tried to, you know, to deliver their policies was farcical. Their communications have been catastrophic. And, but their vision was correct. And here's one of the deep ironies. I believe they were right to want to go for growth. This is actually a, a script that many politicians around the world are saying. It was it was the major dominant economic theme for Xi Jinping's opening of the Communist Party of China's recent Congress. You know, he said China's in trouble. We've suffered from COVID. Our economic growth is parlous. We have to go for growth. People who are looking for growth um, are on the right track, and. Where Truss and Kwarteng were right was to call out the failure of the last 14 years. The fact that the funny money tree, the low interest rates, the, the creditism, the inflationism, the always doing things on the never-never, the ever more public and private indebtedness, that this is not a road to truthful wealth creation, capital formation and growth. Yeah. So now we're between a rock and a hard place that, in a sense, they've undermined that agenda. They've undermined those truths. And so what has actually happened under Chancellor Hunt, and let me give you a really stark statistic, 
since Jeremy Hunt became Chancellor, he has increased taxes on business by 31%. And he has told us that there are going to be cuts. And he has told us there's going to be a, a deeper recession. And that does not strike me as a recipe for stability, for success. And it does not strike me as the sort of agenda that you'd expect from a British Chancellor. So we're lurching now. We seem to have a soggy Keynesian statist, high tax, no growth, blancmange, and you can have a change of the deck chairs, you can have a change of the colour of the government, you can have the blues in, you can have the reds in, you can kick the can further down the road, but this is not sustainable for our children and our grandchildren. Tim, let us please, please change the subject. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture, where I'm talking to Professor Tim Evans of Middlesex University. Tim, I think you want to talk a little bit about, um, about Russia and the war on Ukraine, which is still um, continuing rather sadly. But what's your um, um, topic going to be? If... It strikes me that obviously the war is going badly uh, for Putin, for his military machine, but I'm a great lover of history. Um, and I came across an article um, the other day written by a man who is an expert on the European far right. And the article he wrote is called Defeating the Russian Behemoth in the historiverse. What he means is the universe of historical understanding and thinking. And the message of this article is that Russian popular opinion is dominated by a distorted view of what happened, of what sparked the Second World War. You know, the popular view, the one that's become entrenched in our, in our thinking, is that Adolf Hitler, um, through Operation Barbarossa, attacked the Soviet Union, um, and that the Soviet Union, through Stalingrad and all kinds of heroic ventures, uh, um, having retreated and having lost millions, um, eventually turned things around, the Red Army advanced, and that they were victorious against Adolf Hitler. And so in, in, in the post-Second World War worldview, most Russians believe that, of course, they have been victorious against Nazism and fascism. And that was all related also to uh, a Marxist-Leninist narrative that liked to paint fascists as somehow um, some sort of extreme Western capitalist with militaristic tendencies, uh, yet 
um, the Soviet Union opposed that and was building a scientific socialism for the liberation of everyone. This is a grave distortion of history because in 1939, the reality is that the Soviet Union, through its foreign minister, Molotov, signed a pact, a deal, with Nazi Germany. And that Molotov-Ribbentrop pact, what is currently stated in GCSE books as the Nazi-Soviet pact, that, in a way, was the real trigger for World War II. Because when Germany attacked Poland from the West, as part of that pact, as part of that agreement, of course, Russia, a few days later, attacked Poland from the East, because the deal was about the carving up mm. of Poland between these two totalitarian states. And um, this is important because to understand that the Second World War was not simply the result of Hitler, but that the Soviets also had a hand in it, that they were... Um, that they were also aggressors, that they had sided with Hitler, and that they had agreed, or uh, you know, on this um, foreign adventurism. This is really, really important, and it's important because, as George Orwell said, you know, who controls, in effect, the narrative for the past and the present controls the future, and. What I think is important when this war in Ukraine is settled, it is very, very important that I think that there is a calling out of the historic role of the Soviet Union in its collusion with the Nazis and its role in causing the Second World War. It was absolutely correct, and I think it was a, a, a superb thing that we had the Nuremberg trial at the end of the Second World War, and that lots of Nazis were put on trial, and that Nazism and fascism have been reviled. What I think is important is that at some point um, in having a more objective view of the past, of this history, there has to be not only uh, a calling out of Putin and the current Russian leadership, the war crimes that have been committed, but the Russian people and the historians everywhere understand that Putin, like Stalin, has been exploiting a distorted vision of history because it's when only when you can understand that distortion that you can understand Putin's lie that Russia is attacking or trying to liberate an essentially Nazi country. To us, we know that's ludicrous, it's mad, and it's bad, and it's wrong. But what we absolutely need is a vilification a sort of Nuremberg trial for this Soviet era lie, we need to kill it, we need to correct it. Because only then, when that is done, quite frankly, can Russian people 
be freed as German people were freed mm. in the late 40s and the 50s to understand the world through a more objective prism, to take responsibility for past misdemeanors, and to be able to mentally operate um, uh, through better lenses uh, in the future. I think one of the great mistakes that have been made, particularly when the, we had the collapse of the Berlin Wall, is that there was not the great calling out of the war crimes and the lies of the Stalinist era, because it's fueled and it's bled into the Putin era. Fascinating, Tim. Thank you very much indeed. That's Tim Evans, who's Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Tim will be back um, talking to us again in the bigger picture in a fortnight's time. The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.